sport in the military is something that's always very important to me. And People wanted to ask me how my, my child wants to be a catcher. What do I tell them? And I said, catch every ball. And in life, isn't that the way it is? I spent two years in the service, and I was proud to be part of it. I wore that uniform with a pride and dignity, just like I wore the Dodger uniform with great character and love. The greatest name in the history of the Cleveland Indians franchise, Mr. Bob Feller. Today on the American Valor podcast, Tyler Buckholz and Colin Kirk speak with Judge Michael Allen, a judge of the United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Judge Allen was a tenured law professor at Stetson University, and before that, he practiced law for nine years in the litigation department of the international law firm Ropes and Gray. Judge Allen attended the University of Rochester and received his Juris Doctor from Columbia Law School. In this conversation, you will hear him speak about his career path, why students study law, and his interesting stories of being invited to the White House to interview for his current position, as well as the confirmation process with Congress. Oh, thanks for having me, Tyler. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and your growing up and your story that led you to where you are today? Sure. I uh, I grew up in a very, very small town outside of uh, Syracuse, New York, a little place called Manoa. And uh, I really had no... Uh, um, no uh, aspirations to do uh, anything <laughs> dramatic. Uh, you know, my dad worked at UPS. My mom was an x-ray technician. And uh, I went to college at the University of Rochester and planned to go back to Syracuse and be a high school history teacher, actually. Uh, and um, I actually took the LSAT, the, the, the standardized test to get into law school, uh, only <laughs> only because of a dare from somebody. Uh, but I did better than I thought I would do and then applied to law schools and ended up, uh, ended up going down to New York City and going to Columbia. So it was, I'm definitely an accidental lawyer. That's amazing, yeah. So you said you took the LSAS based on a dare. Did you not do any prep beforehand and you just went in and took it or how'd that work? Uh, I, I yeah I really didn't I mean I I don't uh, I always tell students don't uh, don't do as I do do as I say and the most important thing if anybody's listening to this that wants to go to law school is take an LSAT preparation test um, but I was uh, I was at a party talking to somebody that I didn't particularly like who was pretty full of himself and he said oh it's too bad you're not going to take the LSAT because we could bet and so I foolishly said well then I'll take it. And so that's the honest to God story about how I ended up going to law school. That's crazy. We, uh, we had a friend who we made him take the SAT again as a punishment for, uh, coming last in our fantasy, fantasy football? football league. Yeah, yes, absolutely. there you go. Yeah. So, uh, I don't, I don't think he's going to wind up becoming a judge because of that. No. <laughs> um, so then, uh, you went on from there and you went on to Columbia law school. Uh, what I led did. you to Columbia? Well, a, a couple of things, you know, I pretty much uh, just sort of applied across the board. And, um, you know, I was surprised. I used to tell people that I was convinced that my uh, application, because, of course, I did this in the age of dinosaurs, um, and so everything was on paper. And so I told them that I was convinced that my application had gotten blown from the reject pile into the acceptance pile. 
So I was really thrilled because Columbia was such a, a strong law school. And plus, you know, being a small town kid growing up in upstate New York, the chance to live in New York City for a few years was exciting. And so those those things sort of led me to uh, led me to go to uh, to the law school. And interestingly, uh, one of the, uh, the you know, real popular television show now, <laughs> Live PD, I don't know if you've ever seen it, um, but the host of that show is a guy named Dan Abrams, who happened to be in my class in, in law school, so that's sort of my claim to fame. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, my grandfather actually went to Columbia um, as well. Oh, well. I feel in good company, though. <laughs> um, so then you went on to be a, a civil litigator. Um, what kind of uh, things did you practice in that field at Ropes and Gray? So Ropes and Gray, uh, big law firm. I mean, today it's got probably, well, well over a thousand lawyers. Um, when I was there, when I left, it was about 600. And so it, it was an expensive place. And so we represented a lot of um, companies in co commercial litigation. Uh, so I did everything from representing Lloyds of London in some big insurance cases to Fidelity Investments was a client of the firm um, and actually even represented a Norwegian manufacturer of fertilizer in connection with the first World Trade Center bombing back in 1993. Um, and that company had been sued because its fertilizer supposedly was used to make the bomb that exploded in the building. So I sort of did a whole range of civil litigation. So how did you go from being a litigator at a big law firm to a teacher in the classroom? And did you have any challenges from going to uh, being in court to uh, them being in the classroom? So the first part of that was that um, I'd been there for about nine years or so uh, at the law firm. I just had my uh, oldest child. I traveled all the time uh, in my job. I knew that was going to happen. And so I thought, you know, listen, I should try to find something that's a little bit more uh, stable in terms of where I, where I stay. And so I was looking to apply to the United States Attorney's Office in the District of Massachusetts. And somebody mentioned to me, you know, hey, you might be uh, a good uh, law school teacher. And so unlike most things, I didn't do a lot of research into that process and how difficult it is actually to be hired, it turns out. Um, so I just put my hat into the ring. There's a centralized process and ended up getting uh, some interviews. And uh, one of them was at a place called Stetson University College of Law, which is in uh, just outside of uh, Tampa, Florida. And um, they were looking for have somebody teach civil procedure and constitutional law and federal courts. And those were things that I was interested in doing. Um, and they valued the experience I had um, at Ropes and Gray. And so I ended up going. And, um, you know, most of the things that about being a lawyer that I really enjoyed actually get mimicked when you're a teacher you get to work with people, you get to speak in public. It's not in front of a jury, but it's in front of a class. Um, and really the only thing that you don't get to do is develop the strategy of how you actually go from point A to point Z um, in a case. And, and I missed that, but I, I really loved teaching and didn't expect that I would ever, 
would ever leave it, actually. You said you wanted to be a history professor or go back to be a history teacher in high school, and then uh, you ended up teaching at law school. What is the common theme there? How did, what made you want to be a teacher and a professor? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I think it's, um, you know, a lot of how we, uh, the things we want to do get sort of shaped by the environment in which you live, right? You know, it's probably not an accident that a lot of doctors' children become doctors. Um, and for me, it wasn't that my parents were teachers. It was that I had a number of teachers along the way that at various different points really made a tremendous impression on me. And, you know, it, it wasn't like I consciously said, oh, Mr. Short did this and therefore I should be a teacher. But I think that there's no question that that sort of, sort of set, set my frame of reference about the things in the world that can be important. And so I think that, that I was always driven to do that. Yeah, I think it's easy to uh, look back on, you know, your professors in college and in your teachers in high school and think, you know, they made such a big impact on me and where I am today. I kind of want to make that same impact on, on other students or younger Absolutely. generations. And one of the most amazing things about being a teacher was you, you know when you make a difference for some people because just it is a either you, you keep in touch with them or it's such a dramatic thing that you do that, that you, you don't have to guess. But it, what's amazing to me, because I taught for 16 years before I became a judge, um, are, are the number of people, sometimes people I don't actually even remember that, that come up to me and say, oh my goodness, you did this, and it made a huge difference. <laughs> And you don't even know you did it. And that's the most amazing thing about being a teacher. And now uh, you work for the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims is the youngest uh, federal court. It was created by Congress in 1988 and began operations 1989. We just celebrated our 30th anniversary. And so there are uh, nine judges on the court. Um, there, we're appointed by the president uh, and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Um, we're an appellate court, uh, which means we don't. It's not like we hear trials or anything like that. Um, we basically hear appeals from um, the highest body within the Department of Veterans Affairs as it relates to medical care benefits and cemetery matters, basically. So any, any benefit you think about that might be administered through the department, whether it's healthcare, uh, student loans, you have GI bills. I'm sure you've got tons of people uh, at your university that are on the GI bill, for example, home loans, life insurance, disability compensation. Uh, we, we hear appeals uh, from all of those issues. Could you tell us a little bit about the nomination process from your perspective? Uh, maybe going back to when you first heard you were going to receive the nomination? Um, sure. Uh, so um, I got, um, so I should tell you that I'm, I am uh, uh, bad with technology. That, so that, that's important. I had just gotten a new cell phone. 
It was in March of 2017. I was on the campus of the law school standing outside a classroom talking to somebody and my phone rang and I never would have answered the phone. But number one, I, it, because there's a new phone, I couldn't figure out how to make it stop ringing <laughs> and I needed it to stop ringing because I was outside the classroom. And the reason I wouldn't have answered it is it the, the caller identification came up as blocked number. And of course, you know, nothing good usually comes from a blocked number. But anyways, I picked it up and the voice on the other end of the line said, hi, this is said his name, I'm calling from the White House Counsel's Office. And I said, sure you are, and hung up the phone. Um, <laughs> now, it turns out that's not an uncommon situation. Um, but they called back and they they told me, no, 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 we really are from the White House. We're uh, interested in uh, talking to you about becoming a judge. And, uh, you know, to this day, I'm not entirely sure how that happened. I don't have political connections. I, I really don't. A matter of fact, during the confirmation process, a young Senate staffer said to me, uh, who is your rabbi? Uh, now, I happen to be Jewish, and I said, Michael Torup. And the person said back to me, I don't know who Senator Torup is, because the term <laughs> rabbi is, who's the person in the Senate who's pushing you? <laughs> um, I, I mean, so not only didn't I have a rabbi, I didn't even know what they meant by a rabbi. Um, but, you know, they, they said, no, we really want you to come. And uh, they said, we want you to come. It was like four days later. So I get on a plane, I get to Washington, I get into, I still don't have any information other than I'm supposedly going to the White House. And I get into a cab and I say to the cab driver, take me to the White House. And he said, what entrance? And I said, I have no idea. Um, just, just pick an entrance. So drop me off. I'm still waiting because this has all been done by text. And then uh, the thought crossed my mind because after I had gotten this telephone call, I got a text from the block number that had a website. And I went to the website <laughs> and it was a website for the United States Secret Service and gave every bit of information about me you can imagine. And I'm standing now on the street corner outside the White House thinking I am the subject of the most elaborate identity theft scheme ever. <laughs> because that's what I thought had happened. Um, and I thought, how am I going to tell people that this is what I did? I'm, I did everything that they said don't do. <laughs> I went to a website that was a randomly one sent by a block number. But in any event, I, I, I did get in, had the interview, um, and then about uh, a week and a half later, I got a call from Don McGahn, who was the White House counsel, who said uh, you know, that the president was going to uh, nominate me. And um, then, you know, you begin to fill out forms and the FBI does their background investigation. And then you deal with the Senate where you fill out more forms. You meet the senators individually. And then um, I was confirmed in August of 2017. So my life really turned around in, on a dime between March and August of 2017.
So it sounds like you weren't, this wasn't even on your horizon. Did you even picture eventually becoming a judge or was this just kind of fell into your lap? Well, so being a law professor um, and a lawyer beforehand, um, you know, um, I would have loved to have tried being a judge, but I figured by the time that this was in my career, um, you know, the chance of me becoming a judge, I thought was, you know, next to zero. I didn't have political connections. I wasn't in a position to, you know, donate money and be involved in politics in that way. And so this was just a tremendous shock. <laughs> Getting that call and then everything, it sounds like something out of a, a movie or a TV show that you might see. Well, I still have moments where uh, it's hard for me to imagine, even after you know two and a half years, that this is true. I mean, you know, um, I, I actually got sworn in officially by a federal judge down here in Tampa who I've known for years. But then I got to have a ceremonial <laughs> swearing in um, but by John Roberts at the Supreme Court. And, I, you know, I can remember – I had a John Roberts moment with John Roberts because I'm standing there. We're both in our robes in the Supreme Court, and he's administering this oath to me. And I, I was thinking of my parents who had both passed away and thinking, you know, my God, what would they think? And then I realized I, was, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention to what he was saying, and I was supposed to be repeating it back to him. And I thought, my God, this is just what happened to him when he sworn – President Obama, right? <laughs> but I, I faked my way through it. So, yeah, it's actually, uh, it's actually funny. My grandfather was a judge in New York. Uh, he was a federal administrative judge too. So I'm seeing a, a lot of similarities. Um, what was that like going to interview at the White House? I feel like that must be the most intimidating interview ever. So, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I think objectively, it is extremely intimidating. Um, I mean, obviously, just going into the White House complex and all of that is there. But I told that story earlier about thinking I had been the subject of rampant identity theft, because in addition to making me look silly at that moment, but it, that was that was so stressful thinking I have now <laughs> opened up everything in my life to hackers. <laughs> That, ob that oddly enough, I think that calmed me down because, you know, once I knew, oh, my goodness, I'm actually in the, the building. This is OK. I mean, it, it, one thing along the way that I learned in this process is so, for example, you know, I get to have I have four law clerks that help in me and and they um, uh, they're all young, you know, right out of law school. Um, the people in the Senate that you deal with, the staffers on the committees are overwhelmingly very young. The people who interviewed me in the White House Counsel's Office were all young enough to be my children, all of them. And so it, it, it wasn't quite as intimidating as I would have thought of going into it, actually, interestingly enough. So now that you're in the position, um, you mentioned a little bit what uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claim is and, you know, the kind of cases that you will hear. Um, one of the missions of the court is to seek uh, to help ensure that all veterans have equal access to the courts. Uh, 
Um, how does it feel to, you know, get the chance to help ensure justice um, and the process that they fight to protect, uh, you know, is working for them? Well, so, you know, uh, a couple of things on that. So, uh, you know, I tell, I, I said this during my confirmation hearing and I tell it to my law clerks, which is if we can leave the courthouse every day and we can say, we tried to get it right, number one, and we made sure that everybody had that feeling like they've been heard, then we're going to have done our job. And, you know, there's a television show um, long before you guys were born, um, but it's famous, so you'll know it, which was MASH. And what's interesting is um, there was a character in MASH, a guy named Radar, who's a young, naive guy. And in one episode, there is a, a soldier who today we would say has PTSD. Um, at the time, they say he's shell-shocked. And he thinks he's Jesus Christ. And Radar goes up to him and asks him a question and says, is it true that God answers all prayers? And the guy answers back, um, yes. And sometimes the answer is no. And that's a lot of what is difficult about being a judge because some of the the stories that these men and women who've put their lives on the line to protect all our freedoms some of their stories are horrific and but sometimes what they're asking for my job is to say no and so I think veterans sometimes can get a little confused that the court is there like as an advocate to them, but we're, we're very committed to fairness, but sort of like a baseball umpire. Um, I don't have a, uh, I don't have a preference of whether the runner is going to be out or safe. It's my job to make sure I do the best I can to make that call. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to explain it. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of a lot of what a judge is and the difficult aspects of it can definitely get lost through all the, you know, the TV shows that people watch, including lawyers. Oh, absolutely. I, when I was a law professor, I used to say that the, the, the greatest threat to judicial independence was actually Judge Judy, because if you watch that <laughs> show, of course, it's done for television, but you know, there's yelling and there's screaming and there's, and it's just like, well, who would want to defend an institution like that? Um, but when you're a real judge, it's, you know, you, you try to get it right. Yeah, I think that's, that's great insight. And, you know, uh, I'll ask a question, uh, going back to kind of what you said earlier about um, do as you say, not as you did. Um, I'm actually planning on going to law school and, you know, there's probably listeners out there who are thinking about a career in law. What advice would you have for uh, a younger person looking to go into law or even someone who's looking to make a career change and get into the legal practice? Well, I have to say, first of all, um, being a lawyer is a fantastic thing. Um, you know, I, I would sometimes give, because I also spent four years as the associate dean at the law school, so I would speak to each incoming class. And one of the things I would say to them is I would say, you know, listen, um, lawyers can uh, change the world, right? Think of 
you know, Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Clarence Thomas, put your, your special person in there. And, but then I would say, you know, but in reality, uh, my, the secret is most of you <laughs> unlikely to be Clarence Thomas, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But then I say to them, but, you know, everybody in the room can still make a difference because you can be Timothy Keogh. And I would say to them, nobody in this room knows who Tim Timothy Keogh is. Um, but I say he's a lawyer. He was a lawyer. He had an office in a barn, um, literally a barn. And one day a woman is driving down the road and she was really upset. Her husband had a uh, brain tumor and had done all sorts of things to the family finances. And she didn't know what she was going to do. And she saw the sign that said, Timothy Kehoe, lawyer. And she pulled in to the parking lot outside the bar and went in. And over the next few months, he was able to unravel all of those, put other things in place using his skills as a lawyer um, so that the, the man could die in peace and, and the woman had this security. And I say, you can all be Timothy Kears because you can change the world one person at a time. And then I would tell them, I'm not making an assumption <laughs> because the woman was my mother and the, the guy who died was my father. And I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for a little small town lawyer working out of a barn who made as much of a difference in my life as Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Thurgood Marshall ever will. And so for anybody thinking about going to law school, it's easy to get enmeshed in the details and the ranking of a law school and the LSAT and all of this. But think about how many jobs there are that you can actually end up making that type of difference so profoundly because of the education you get. And so the inspirational part of that is it is a great career. Don't buy into the lawyer jokes. Um, as a practical bit of advice, seriously, two things. Definitely focus on the LSAT because as sad as it is, that's an objective piece of data that law schools really pay attention to. And so the difference between uh, you know, one or two numbers uh, or levels on the LSAT in terms of the score is a huge deal. And second, think about your letters of recommendation that you get. You want to get letters of recommendation from people who, who actually can say that they've had experience with you in terms of doing some type of analysis, preferably some type of writing. Um, because you have to imagine that a lot of the files, once you're in the same numeric range in terms of the LSAT and undergraduate GPA, look pretty similar. And most people's letters of recommendation aren't going to be, I really don't like the guy, right? But a letter of recommendation that says, yeah, they worked, uh, I was the manager at the Best Buy and he's worked here for a number of years and he's great. That doesn't help as opposed to somebody who said, oh, I, he took a seminar with me in law in college and this is what he did. Those are the two biggest practical pieces of advice I'd give. Thank you very much for you know giving us your time today and coming to talk to us a little bit about your career and then what you're doing with the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast. 
please leave a review and share the podcast with your friends and family. The Bob Feller Foundation is pleased to be offering two scholarships this year. The first for an undergraduate or high school student who has at least one parent in active duty and displays a great sense of service to others. The second is for a veteran in pursuit of higher education. If you or someone you know fits this description, we encourage you to view the requirements under education at activevaloraward.org. Please join us next time when the conversation will feature United States Naval Academy graduate and minor league baseball player, Luke Gillingham. Thank you for listening to the American Valor Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Please like, review, and subscribe to the American Valor Podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you back.